0: Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor Kohler, they design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. When I was growing up, my mother would sometimes put out a clear fish bowl filled with M and M's. Now, I wouldn't say that I had a favorite color, but I definitely had a least favorite. I was chatting about this recently with Willa Paskin, the host of Slate's Dakota Ring podcast. I probably separated them out and gave them to somebody else, you know, the tan M&Ms.
1: You set aside your tan for somebody else to eat because you didn't want them.
0: Yeah. I mean, who wants tan food? Turns out, I wasn't alone. Eventually, even M&M didn't want tan food. In 1995, the company held a contest to replace the tan color with either pink, purple, or blue. And Blue won. The contest generated a huge amount of attention— Willa and I both remember it.
1: Can I tell you my M&M story?
0: Please. Tell me your M&M story.
1: I was in high school or middle school. It was like, I think there was like four of us wearing our pea coats It's very like the
0: 90s.
1: (laughs) And we bought a pack of blue M&Ms that was going to have this new color blue. We knew we were doing that. And we took, we bought it. And one of the girls like pours it into her hand. And we knew it was coming. And we all genuinely (gasps) shrieked. Shrieked in joy. Like just, it was so like... (gasps) The marketing campaign worked so well, we were overcome, and we still were like, what a gorgeous (gasps) M&M. Blue!
0: These days, finding blue candy probably won't cause a shriek of adolescent joy. Now we see blue all over the snack and the freezer aisles. But that wasn't always the case. For decades, it was extremely rare to find blue in the foods that we eat and drink. So the question is, why? Well, to find out, we teamed up with Willa Paskin from Slate's Dakota Ring podcast. Now, if you've ever listened to her show, you know that she does these really deeply reported stories to crack cultural mysteries. And this blue food question, well, it got the full Dakota Ring treatment— So today, I'm going to hand things over to Willa, and she's going to share two stories that together explain why it took so long for blue food to catch on. Now, the first is about a blue food that we have come to love. And the second, well, it's about a blue food that we still think we don't. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this... Is proof. Hi, proof listeners. It's Bridget, and I want to tell you about nakedwines.com. It's a whole new way to buy wine. Nakedwines.com will ship delicious, affordable wines directly to your home, all from independent winemakers worldwide. It's a great way to try new wines with no risk, because if you don't like a wine, they have a completely hassle free money back guarantee. And that's even if you drank the whole bottle. On their website, you can read reviews from other wine drinkers, and you can find advice for what wines to pair with your favorite meals. Go to NakedWines.com slash proof for $50 off your first order. Here's Willa Paskin.
1: Before we start, I want to set the table. I want to talk about what sets blue food apart.
2: Why is there no blue food? I can't find blue food. I can't find a flavor of blue. I mean, green is lime, yellow is lemon, orange is orange, red is cherry. What's blue? There's no
1: blue. That's George Carlin in 1975 on the first ever episode of Saturday Night Live. He'd continued doing this bit for years. It doesn't really work for me as comedy. But it does get to the fundamental thing about blue food. It barely exists in nature. Nope, not even in blueberries.
2: Oh, they say blueberries! Uh-uh. Blue on the vine, purple on the plate. There's no blue food. Where is the blue food? We want the blue
1: food. Most of the blue we see is a reflection or an iridescence. It's blue because of how the light bounces off of something, rather than a pigment inherent in the thing itself. So you see blue in bird feathers and butterfly wings, in the sky and the ocean, but it's rare in the plants and animals that we actually eat. That means blue is a common color, but it's uncommon in food. Historically, there have been two ways to think about this paradox. The first, which was ascendant for much of the 20th century, is that this makes blue innately unappetizing, something we see and subconsciously associate with rot and mold and poison and don't want to eat. But the second, which has always been lurking around, is that this unusualness might, in the right circumstance, make blue special, make it stand out, make it exciting. The most concrete evidence in support of the first school of thought, the blue is an absolute non-starter school, is a well-known study from the early 1970s.
2: Imagine you're in a windowless room, a clinical setting. It's not unusual in any way except that the lighting is, is low. And there's about a half dozen people in there who have agreed to participate in this focus group.
1: Joel Tannenbaum is a history professor at Community College of Philadelphia, and I think it's safe to say the world's leading expert on this experiment.
2: And everyone who's participating in the experiment is given a plate of food, and the plates are all identical. They have uh, steak, peas, and some kind of fried potatoes on them. So, at around the 15-minute mark, everything's going well. All of a sudden, normal overhead lighting is restored. This allows everyone to see their food much more clearly. And they look down and they see that the steak that they've been eating is bright blue, the peas are kind of a blood red, and the potatoes are green. Someone gets sick, someone gets angry, maybe someone, you know, throws a plate or some cutlery at the wall. Bottom line is that people are reacting to this surprise appearance of their food with extreme displeasure.
1: This study, which first appeared in 1973, has been cited everywhere—in academic papers and journals, The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York Times, NPR—just about every lay story about how color affects our sense of taste, and it's also widely known among food professionals. And it seems to suggest, among other things, that there's something powerfully off about blue food. We're going to return to this study in the second half of the episode— But before that, we're going to consider the best evidence in support of the other side of the blue paradox, in support of team blue food can be appealing, saleable and fun. We're going to look at blue raspberry.
2: Kool-Aid jammers with 10 percent real fruit juice and vitamin C. Now a new blue raspberry. (laughs)
1: Blue Raspberry is the electric blue, very sweet flavor you can find in Slurpees, icies, Popsicles, sports drinks, gummies, lollipops, licorice, syrups, sucking candies, and more. It is particularly beloved by children, not simply for its taste, but for the way it stains your tongue, a vibrant, almost lurid shade of blue. Though the internet will tell you there is a real blue raspberry, the white bark raspberry, this not-so-common varietal is even less blue than a blueberry, which as previously mentioned is in fact a ruddy purple. So, our first story, how did blue and raspberry, two things with no connection in nature, become one flavor? So I want to begin at the moment we became capable of making blue food in the first place with the invention of synthetic dyes. In the 1850s, chemists were playing around with coal tar waste and actually discovered that they could create dyes from coal tar waste. Carolyn Cobalt is a historian and the author of A Rainbow Palette, How Chemical Dyes Changed the West's Relationship with Food. The dyes they created from the coal tar waste were used as textile dyes, but they actually started going into food from about the 1860s. Needless to say, eating dyes intended for textiles, to say nothing of a number of even more toxic additives, would occasionally make people really sick. So in 1906, the American government started to regulate these dyes. By that point, there were more than 900 textile dyes with off-label usages in food. Rather than test all of them, the government decided it would be easier just to approve seven of them. By the 1930s, that list had grown to 15, and it included blue dye number one, also known as brilliant blue, and red dye number two, a deep red color typically used with raspberry flavoring. The standard story of Blue Raspberry's origin is all tied up with these two dyes. There was big concern in the 1950s about one of the red dyes. So at that point, people thought, oh, what are we gonna, what are we gonna dye our raspberry sherbet ice cream with? Red dye number two would officially be banned as a carcinogen in 1976, but it was intermittently controversial in the decades before. The story goes that during one of those moments of controversy in the late 1950s, the carnival supplier Gold Medal, based in Cincinnati, which invented the first reliable cotton candy machine in 1949, decided to stop using red dye number two but it still had all this raspberry flavoring, which it paired with blue dye number one instead, creating what a trade publication at the time referred to as a new blue raspberry flavor for snow cones and cotton candy. At this point, Blue cotton candy, called blue raspberry, joined pink vanilla as the default cotton candy shade and flavor. But it wasn't until the 1970s, when red dye number two became really controversial, that two frozen treat companies, Icy and Otter Pops, started making blue raspberry treats themselves. And that's when the flavor really went mainstream. In this version of the story, blue raspberry is a solution to a problem. These companies have all this raspberry flavoring and nothing to pair it with. So they turn raspberries blue. It's blue as a last resort. But what if it was more than that? The story
3: about blue raspberry that like I had heard for a gazillion years was that it had to do with um, red number two being pulled from the market
1: Nadia Berenstein is a flavor historian, and when she started digging into where blue raspberry comes from, she came across a couple of relevant things. The first is that very quickly, like back in the 1890s, when refined sugar production made rainbow-hued penny candies a commonplace, manufacturers understood that brightly colored foods were especially appealing to children, even if they had no specific flavor. The color alone was a draw. By the 1920s, this knowledge was showing up in beverage trade journals, or Nadia found an article noting that at fairs and carnivals, kids were much more likely to buy a fuchsia-colored lemonade than a regular one, even when the taste was the same. By the 1950s, as major corporations were starting to target different portions of the market, there's all this lay evidence that a bright color like blue might actually help a product stand out, especially to kids— And that seems to be where Blue Raspberry really started, as a way to make a treat stand out during the post-war ice cream boom.
3: The earliest Blue Raspberry-flavored things start appearing in, like, the early 1950s, and they're usually ice creams. There's an increasing number of, like, frozen delicious things to eat, and people have freezers so they can buy ice cream at stores um, and bring them home, right? So there's just more competition in that space.
1: In a newly jammed freezer aisle, Blue is Gonna Pop. By 1955, the Popsicle Corporation, the company that has a trademark for that name, was advertising a new Blue Raspberry Double Pop Popsicle a few years before it started showing up in cotton candy and snow cones. But there was another thing inspiring Blue Raspberry as well. The 4th of July.
3: I think that the desire to make red, white, and blue frozen ice cream desserts is
1: like a thing that kind of like births blue raspberry. The first ads that Nadia has seen that mention blue raspberry are for tri-colored patriotic treats in red, white, and blue, where the blue is blue raspberry you can still buy patriotic themed ice cream concoctions like this. This past summer, I got a July 4th themed carton with vanilla for white, some kind of strawberry swirl for red, and for the blue, of course, blueberry chip. So this is where the blue raspberry saga just really elevates for me into an A plus brain teaser a blue raspberry was not created to deal with this glut of raspberry flavoring, but instead to fill out the American flag. Why isn't it blueberry? I know I've said blueberries are not really blue. And sure, there's some poetic justice in blue, which does not naturally exist in fruit, being so closely associated with a totally made up fruit. But come on, why not blueberry? I love this story because it's so counterintuitive. Why won't you pick blueberry? It's right there.
3: Right. Yeah, that's the other thing. Blueberry also has this crazy story. I mean, or I think it's crazy because (laughs) blueberry seems like such a standard fruit now. But not so long
1: ago, really. They were an odd fruit. Wild blueberries are native to North America, and they grow robustly in the Pacific Northwest and all along the eastern seaboard. But they proved very difficult to cultivate. It wasn't until the 1910s and 20s that they were domesticated.
3: There were wild blueberries in places like Maine that you could get locally or regionally, but it wasn't a fruit that people um, around around the U.S., much less around the world, were familiar with.
1: In 1939, Americans were eating about 20 million pounds of blueberries, most of them wild, half canned or frozen, which sounds like a lot until you learn that at the same time we were producing 400 million pounds of table grapes and 46 million pounds of figs. Dried figs were twice as popular as blueberries kills me. And by 1961, our blueberry intake had only gone up to around 24 million pounds. Today, we're at 660 million pounds. It's not like blueberries were unknown. Blueberry pie was popular. There was the 1946 children's book, Blueberries for Sal, which is all about hunting wild blueberries. In 1964, Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory included a character who turns into a blueberry. And there's also Fats Domino's 1940 song, Blueberry Hill, which was covered by Elvis, Dion, Louis Armstrong, and Led Zeppelin, among others. I found my thrill. Oh,
2: blueberry.
1: We're basically into the 1950s. Blueberries were not even figs. There was just whole swaths of the country where using a raspberry to connote blue instead of a blueberry would not have been the affront to common sense that it is today. By 1980, though, the world was starting to look more familiar, blueberry-wise. That year, Jelly Belly, a company that had existed since 1898, finally developed its very first blueberry-flavored jelly bean when they needed a blue-colored bean to include in a red, white, and blue display for Ronald Reagan's inauguration. Still, all these years later, blueberry remains a relatively rare candy flavor. It's not nearly as common as artificially flavored grape, cherry, strawberry, or even blue raspberry. You can get blue raspberry Jolly Ranchers, for example, but not blueberry ones. I find it difficult to even conjure up its taste compared to these other artificial flavors. It's like the space that a blueberry candy should be. It's not there because blue raspberry is there instead. All of this suggests that the blue food debate should have been over in the 1970s, when blue raspberry became a best-selling freezer pop flavor. But oddly, that wasn't enough to put blue over the top. It would take another 25 years for blue to get out of the freezer section. And the reason why is where we're going next.
0: After the break, Willa finds out why it took another 25 years for blue to get out of the freezer section. Many people are stuck at home, including us at America's Test Kitchen. Welcome to America's Test Kitchen at home. It's a good day today.
2: Just gonna put this in our food processor and buzz it for five to seven pulses until it's coarsely chopped. (laughs) I'm gonna plug it in too, that's always good.
0: And again, things may catch on fire. It happens. Holy cow, I'm doing this. Okay, I got this. Which means a lot of us are spending more time in our kitchens. Upgrade your kitchen with Kohler's Iron Ridge Farmhouse Kitchen Sink. It has a sloped bottom, and it's made of heavy-duty enameled cast iron. This sink is designed to stand up to the hardest-working kitchens and look beautiful while doing so. If you're cooking at home more than ever, you might as well enjoy it. Learn more at Kohler.com. For 30 years, OXO has made thoughtfully designed kitchen tools to make every day better. And senior product manager Jamie Levy says the new OXO Brew 8-cup coffee maker can make your coffee better, too.
3: We take so much pride in the work we do here, the thought we put into our products, the products we put on the market. The feature that is designed to allow you to brew into a mug is really a great feature. It's nice to be able to brew directly into your mug and you don't have to like hack the machine
0: to be able to make that work. It actually was designed to allow that. Brew a cup right into your cup. With a single serve setting on Oxo Brew's new eight cup coffee maker. Shop Oxo Brew products at oxocom brew. That's OXO.comslash brew. Oxo, better, guaranteed. Hi, proof listeners. The holiday season is here, and in New England, that means all things cranberry. Now today, I'm calling my America's Test Kitchen colleague, Sam Block, to hear how she likes to use cranberries. Hey, Sam. Hey, Bridget. So I've got cranberries in my recipes. I've got cranberries in decorations, that's for sure. What about cranberries for the home bar? Feeling like a cocktail.
3: Well, I have just the recipe for you. It's called the New Englander, and it's a combination of cranberry shrub syrup, a little bit of lime juice, and some seltzer to make it nice and effervescent.
0: So there's no alcohol in it? There is none. I love that. Even though it's spirit-free, it still has lots of holiday spirit in it. Get in the spirit this holiday season with the help of Ocean Spray Cranberries. For more information and recipes, visit oceanspray.com. Now, back to our story. Here's Willa Paskin again.
1: So for the second story in this episode, we're going to look at what blue raspberry was up against, a deep-seated skepticism about blue food, one you can see expressed in that blue steak experiment I mentioned earlier in the show.
2: The steak that they've been eating is bright blue. The peas are kind of a blood red, and the potatoes are green. Someone gets sick. Someone gets angry. Joel
1: Tannenbaum, the professor at Community College of Philadelphia, has become totally fascinated by this study. He first read about it in the early 2000s, and he never forgot it. He's not the only one.
0: When Willa and I were first chatting about this story, I shared that I'd even heard of the blue steak thing. It's a story that's been circulating in some form amongst food people for a really, really long time. I remember when I was working for Cook's Illustrated magazine all the way back in the 90s, I brought in some of my cobalt blue fiesta wear to have some options for food styling, and I was told that we couldn't use them because you couldn't use blue plates in pictures.
1: As this story has been swirling around food people, it's also been popping up in popular science pieces about blue food and sensory studies, the field that looks at how all of our senses, not just our taste and smell, impact how we experience flavor. Sensory studies is why Joel Tannenbaum was interested in the study too. He'd been teaching a food history course for a few years when he decided to put together a survey text based on what he'd been teaching.
2: And early on... I was working on a chapter about sensory studies, and I remembered the story that I had heard years ago and had, you know, referred to passingly in lectures about this crazy experiment where they dyed food blue.
1: But when he went looking for it, he realized it was hard to find the original study. The academic and non-academic articles that mention it cite the work of
2: Wheatley, a J. Wheatley. So Joel went looking for J. Wheatley. I confirmed that the author of this study was this woman named Jane Wheatley, and she published it in a magazine called Marketing in the early 70s. And Marketing was like a trade magazine, basically, for the advertising and marketing professionals.
1: Jane Wheatley has gone on to have a long career in journalism. But in 1973, she was just an editorial assistant, the most junior title at a magazine. The piece she wrote, a cover story, was titled Putting Color into Marketing.
2: I had to get a friend of mine who's at uh, a university in the U.K., to check this thing out of the British Library in their reading room, scan it for me, <laughs> send it to me. But I finally got my hands on this article, on a PDF of this article, and I was so excited. And when I finally got to it, the whole recount of the experiment was, you know, was in the passive voice and it wasn't attributed. Uh, it's the strangest thing. It's just sort of an anecdote.
1: In other words, the Blue stake Study. It doesn't seem like it really happened. So we went down the rabbit hole with the study, obviously. With Joel's help, we tried to figure out where it really comes from and we have a theory. But before we get to it, I wanna provide some context to explain what the study is really about, which is key to understanding why it's still with us. So color matters to taste. This has been proven in experiment upon experiment upon experiment, real ones, not this one. But that's what this one shows too. And that's important to people on both sides of the historical conflict about blue food I outlined at the top of the show. It mattered the blue will never be popular because it's unnatural side that was ascendant in the mid-20th century. And it still matters that it's surprising and fun and can work in the right circumstances side that's ascendant now. I'm going to give these sides more polished names. The color consultants and the sensory scientists. You may think you don't know anything about color consultants, but a lot of our most common ideas about what colors mean and do were popularized by them. This idea that red and yellow are appetizing and blue is not, that comes from the color consultants. They first popped up in mass after World War II, a moment of ballooning consumer choice, when for the first time you could get lots of consumer goods in lots of different colors, and some of them were even being sold on color TV. Corporations and advertisers needed guidance on this brave new world of color, and a cohort of psychologists, scientists, engineers, and marketers sprung up to advise them. Their recommendations weren't based on a lot of hard science, but they were framed scientifically and authoritatively. They would assert that colors had fundamental qualities and apply them to commercial contexts. So blue was associated with distinction and cold. It could be sleep-inducing and sometimes depressing. But it was also thought to be well-used in freezer aisles, in the packaging for red foods, and as the text on a yellow label. They were solving for color. But the solution wasn't simple. For blue, the cold thing was a particularly big deal. The color consultants were really influenced by color theory and took to the idea of the warm colors, red and yellow, fiery and sunlike, and the cold ones, icy blue. In the context of food, this was connected to appetite. The warm colors were appetizing, while the cold ones were not. This actually might explain why blue first popped up in the freezer aisle, the right place for a cold color, and also why its success there didn't immediately prompt other kinds of blue food. It was the exception that proved the rule. Blue belonged in the cold. These ideas about color and appetite are still in circulation. So needless to say, they were really in circulation in the 1970s, right around when the Blue Steak Study was first published.
2: Go back to the 60s and 70s and the sort of marketeers and the cultural commentators were all suggesting that you'd never be able to sell a blue drink or a blue food. People just wouldn't buy it.
1: Charles Spence is a prolific gastrophysicist and the head of the Cross-Modal Research Laboratory at Oxford University. He does sensory studies, which, unlike color consulting, are scientific, based in experimentation and data. One of his most famous studies showed that the sound of a potato chip, the quality of the crunch when you bite into it, affects how good people think that they are. Another found that having a black or white coffee mug changes how intense and how sweet the drinker finds their coffee. Spence has done a lot of work with Blue and companies developing Blue products, and he thinks that in the right circumstances, Blue food can work really well, set the product apart, and work outside a taster's expectations. But even he likes the Blue steak story.
2: You could take it as perhaps one of the most powerful examples of uh, the visual appearance of food, what it can do to us.
1: Spencer cited it in a number of his academic papers he shot a pilot for a TV show where they riffed on it by serving blue sushi which he says no one wanted to eat and in the mid-2000s at a conference at Oxford he put together a blue dinner for about 50 people where they played Miles Davis's kind of blue and served blue chicken and bread. In a world where many of us still think of a blind taste test as the gold standard for assessing flavor, where you treat the visual as something clouding flavor, not a part of it, Spence sees this study as dramatic evidence to the contrary.
2: It's exciting and important to me. It says, you know, this is how powerful color can be. And to my colleagues in the, in, the, in the world of flavor perception and food who say, you know, well, what you see isn't part of flavor. Um, I, I can't believe that changing the color of something would, would change the taste. Well, you know, how about this as an example?
1: For Spence and most of the people who cite the study, the germane thing about it isn't the blue, though that may be the most distinctive detail. The steak could be purple or green or any color steak isn't naturally and it would make the point they care about. Color impacts flavor. And actually, the steak has been a lot of other colors in the stories and studies that got blended together to make this one. We think. Let's dive in. Okay, This is how the Blue Steak Study is described in the 1973 piece in which it first appeared, the source that launched it out into the world. Several people were collected round a table in a special form of lighting, which showed the food on the plates in front of them, but not its color. After they had consumed some of the meal, normal lighting was resumed, and the subjects found the steak was blue, the peas red, and the chips green. Almost all were violently sick. That's all. There's no more detail. Its own citations don't lead to a more detailed experiment. It's an example, less than a paragraph in a multi-page, many-thousand-word story that's basically a straight-up color consulting story, trying to explain to advertisers how important color is and the various ways it works. This story does come in a paragraph about how color is contextual and memory-based. It concludes by saying kids probably wouldn't have this strong of a reaction. But it also comes with a chart— a little infographic that lists in a word or two what colors mean to people in various countries. Blue is again reduced to cold. Joel had been hoping for more.
2: If not, you know, a study with data, um, then at the very least, like some concrete information about when it had happened and where it had happened and who the participants were and who conducted the study. And there was none of that. Joel
1: tracked down the author, but she didn't remember much about it. It was almost 50 years ago, and it's just a couple-sentence anecdote in a piece that's about something else. But Joel kept digging around. He talked to a lot of people, and he eventually wrote about all of it for Gastronomica. The piece, called Blue Steak, Red Peas, argues, among other things, that one of the reasons this study has proved so sticky is because it taps into our anxieties about shady food manufacturers and synthetic additives, which I think there's something to we now have a very provisional working theory of where the Blue Steak story comes from. We think it's three other stories mixed together. The first one is about an early type of sensory study. So Joel got a lead from the British historian Sally Horrocks, who sent him a newsreel clip taped at the experimental kitchens of the U.K.'s Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Fisheries. In it, you can see women serving food to subjects who are sitting at little cubicles that have gel lights above them. When switched on, they turn all the food beneath them, various bowls of grayish soup, red or green, depending on the filter.
2: So, yeah, so they actually, there's footage at the end of it of this guy being served a tray of what looks like airline food or hospital food, some kind of institutional food. Um, And then someone changes the light above him and he kind of puts his fork down.
1: The newsreel Joel is describing is from 1959. When I spoke with Nadia Berenstein, the flavor historian who I also talked to about Blue Raspberry, she said this kind of experiment goes back to World War II. That's when the American armed forces were some of the first people in the world to live on a diet of largely processed food. To figure out how to make that food appetizing, the army assembled a number of food scientists and psychologists and engineers to do experiments on flavor, often done in deodorized, pressurized cubicles under lights to isolate the subject's sense of taste. Nadia Berenstein again. So
3: sometimes tasters will be doing this work under like red lights kind of like in a dark room, so that everything looks gray, so that color differences will be extinguished.
1: I think this is where the idea of experiments in which you shine colored lights on food comes from. But the gist is there. The details are not. The food itself is institutional and drab. There's no steak or peas or potatoes. Also, no puking. But most of those things are in the story about a dinner party attended or thrown by a man named Louis Cheskin, a big-time post-war color consultant. Cheskin was a psychologist, marketer, and researcher who was known for soliciting input from actual customers, for being more scientific in his methods than some of his peers. He ran something called the Color Research Institute, wrote a number of books, and was apparently fundamental in advising Marlboro to rebrand their cigarettes as manly. He also told McDonald's to keep their golden arches for their Freudian implications. He called the arches Mother McDonald's Breasts. One night, after following a citation from a paper about food color, I was looking through the text of one of Cheskin's books, Colors, What They Can Do For You, which was published in 1947, 23 years before Wheatley's article came out. While skimming through it, I came across this story. The enjoyment of eating is governed by the color almost as much as by the taste of food, as was demonstrated recently at a dinner party given by a lighting engineer. On the banquet table, when the guests took their seats, were dishes filled with the finest and most appetizing foods. Suddenly, the illumination was switched from white to colored lights. The steak took on a bilious gray color. The celery turned extremely pink. Salads were converted into a muddy violet. The green peas looked like oversized black caviar. The milk turned blood red the eggs blue, and the coffee a sickly yellow. Most of the guests immediately lost their appetites. Those who forced themselves to eat the food became ill. I think this dinner party experiment is the one Wheatley is citing. Variations of it show up in a number of Cheskin's other books as well. It's not just that the stories are so similar. It's that a Cheskin book is exactly the kind of thing someone writing about color for marketers in 1973 might have been reading because that's exactly who Cheskin's books were for, too. Still, there's one key element missing from the Cheskin anecdote. The steak's not blue. How'd it turn blue? I think one answer might be Alfred Hitchcock.
0: I once gave a dinner party, oh, many years ago, yeah.
1: where all the food was blue. <laughs> That's the director on the Dick Cavett Show. He hosted this infamous party in a private room at the Trocadero, a shishi London restaurant. It was
0: a full meal. It was uh, chicken soup, blue. blue, blue trout,
2: blue chicken,
3: mm.
2: and blue ice cream. And when you broke open your roll, the bread was blue inside
1: Hitchcock threw this party in the 1930s and another one in the 1960s. But the Dick Cavett appearance was in 1972, and he also told the story in a print interview in 1970, which are both just a few years before the Blue Steak story was published.
0: Did you explain this or did you just not comment on it? Not comment on it at all. Oh, sorry.
1: Even if the Blue doesn't come directly from Hitchcock, He's not eating steak, you might have noticed, but chicken and trout. I think Hitchcock, a grade A self-mythologizer and a master of the eerily show-stoppings interest in blue, underscores the truth about this color, which is as at the grocery aisle, it makes whatever it touches stand out, even a story. It's just better, weirder, more memorable because blue is involved. So that's our working theory Sensory studies and color consulting bump into each other by way of Alfred Hitchcock to create this Frankenstein anecdote that gets passed on and on because even though it's made up, it tells us two things that are true. Color matters, and blue food is special. So to return to where we started, why did it take so long for blue food to catch on? I think mid-century skepticism and Blue Raspberry jockeyed for way longer than it seems like they should have, until Blue's potential as an attention-grabbing novelty finally exceeded concerns that it might be off-putting. In the 1990s and aughts, Blue jumped out of the freezer, and there was an explosion of the color, with M&M, Kool-Aid, Gatorade, and eventually even Heinz ketchup going blue, in Heinz cases, along with a host of other shades. We haven't looked back since... But it's not as though we know for sure now that people like blue food. There's been a number of studies that show it can be off-putting. It really is still mostly a sweet for kids, and we're nowhere near eating blue steak. It's still weird. It's just that manufacturers and marketers have a greater understanding of how blue's unusualness can be worked to a product's advantage. That's another way to think about Blue's slow creep into stores, as tracing food companies' growing awareness that Americans are more willing to try new things than they once thought. The gag of surprise and the thrill of victory. They just might be one bright blue tongue apart.
0: Thanks so much to Willa Paskin for taking us on this absolutely delightful deep dive into the world of blue food. Now, if you liked this story, then you'll definitely want to check out more of Willa's podcast from Slate, The Dakota Ring. She cracks all kinds of cultural mysteries on the show, from the origins of Murphy's Law to the rise and fall of the mullet. You can subscribe to The Dakota Ring wherever you're listening right now. And speaking of subscribing, don't forget to subscribe to Proof if you haven't already. That way you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer, associate producer Caroline Rickert. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Fact-checking by Angela Yang. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, OXO, Ocean Spray, and NakedWines.com. Special thanks to Willa Paskin and Benjamin Frisch at the Dakota Ring Team and to Joel Tannenbaum and Isaac Turner. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.